If you would take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5. Matthew's Gospel chapter 5. And we'll look at verses 38 through 42 in the time that we have together. Indeed, our God does save. And because of that, everything has changed for us. As we're finding our way to Matthew 5 and 38, I want to remind us of some foundational principles that are laid down already in the Sermon on the Mount, but that underlie everything that Jesus says in Matthew 5 and 6 and 7. The first of those is this. We are fundamentally, we are radically different people than who we were because of faith in Jesus Christ. We are not the same person we used to be if we have been touched by the power of the gospel. What is abundantly clear in this passage, in every passage in the Sermon on the Mount, but I think especially so in the passage that we're looking at this morning, is that what Jesus is calling us to is far more than we could achieve, accomplish, or obey in our natural ability. We have become living men and women, new people by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's the second thing. We have become citizens of an entirely different, a new kingdom because of our relationship with Jesus Christ. We've talked in terms in weeks past of this upside down kingdom versus the, upside, versus the right side up perspective of this world. The kingdom into which Jesus has called us is radically different than the kingdom of this world. We have become citizens of an everlasting kingdom with an everlasting king with significantly different expectations for us than anything we have experienced in this world. If there is a single paragraph that stands out as a complete contrast to the ways of this world, the ways of our culture, it's the one we're going to be looking at this morning. What we're being, the ethic that we're being called to in this passage is radically different, fundamentally different than the ethic that we have been immersed in for virtually all of our lives. At least that's the case for most of us reared in the southeastern United States of America. We are citizens of a brand new kingdom, a kingdom that has come and is yet to come in Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, which is just the product of the first two, we've been given a radically different worldview. We see things differently because we're citizens of a new kingdom. We're new people because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And again, our passage this morning provides us with an incredible opportunity to observe in stark contrast the differences between the way the kingdom functions, the way the kingdom sees the world, what the kingdom does or expects of us, and the way the world around us operates. If you found your way to Matthew 5 and verse 38, let's stand together out of respect and honor for the reading of God's word. Matthew 5 and verse 38, Jesus speaking. The Bible says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks you, and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. Jesus does what he's done in the prior paragraphs, citing first an Old Testament passage, presuming upon the understanding of his audience, 
pushing back against the understanding of the day and then explaining or taking us deeper into the true expectations of the spirit of that particular passage. In this instance, Jesus refers to a passage from Exodus 21, 24, and 25. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You don't have to be a Bible student or a Christian even to know the saying, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. What is ironic is that most of the time when this is quoted in our culture, eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, it's usually quoted in a way that reinforces the misunderstanding of the Pharisees and not the teaching that Jesus intends in our passage. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is a prescription offered in the Old Testament within the context of a civil law that means to say that the punishment should fit the crime. The Pharisees' application of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth would be this. He hit me first, so I hit him back. In other words, if he gouges out my eye, I now have the right to, to pursue vengeance, retribution by gouging out his eye. If he knocks out my tooth, I now have the authority, the, the moral justification for knocking out his tooth. This is elementary school, uh, a young boy kind of justification for the way we do things. He hit me first, so I hit him back. It's also offered in the context of civil law, which implies that justice is to be served by the governing authorities. You find eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth in Deuteronomy or in Exodus 24, but also in another setting in both cases within the civil law. In other words, laws are being established for the nation of Israel whereby they are to operate. So justice is being served by the governing authorities, and it's being carried uh, carried out with a degree of, of uh, it's public to some extent, so that others are encouraged not to pursue the same offense so that it's made clear that justice will be served in the case of this particular offense. Jesus is pushing back here against the idea that an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth gives us license to seek retribution for any offense committed against us. Jesus is condemning the spirit of lovelessness and hatred and vindictiveness. The Pharisees have used the law intended to limit the scope of punishment and to prevent personal retribution in order to justify their personal retribution. So practically, legally for us as citizens of America, this works itself out in a number of ways. One, we leave justice to governing authorities. There are laws on the books against vigilantism. If someone does something to you, you don't have the moral authority or the legal right to go out and in your own ability to pursue justice or retribution for the thing that's been done against you. It also means that if you get caught shoplifting in America, we don't cut off your arm because the punishment should fit the crime. There are places in the world where that is the case. But in a culture that has been so influenced by Jewish and Christian influences, we believe in honoring the teaching of this text, rightly understood, the punishment should fit the crime, and to cut off one's hand for shoplifting is an excessive punishment given the crime. Now, I was laying in bed last night thinking about various applications of this passage and the challenge of making hard and fast applications and offering illustrations of how this work, works itself out. And I, I thought to myself for a moment, this might be more difficult for men than for women. We're kind of vengeful creatures, aren't we men? In, inclined toward the respecting of our space and personhood and 
wanting for our pride and ego to be stroked at every occasion. And I thought, this could be more difficult for men. And then I remembered the length of my wife's memory when it comes to offenses. And I came to the realization that this is going to be a difficult teaching for all of us. This, this goes against the grain of who we are in the natural man. We were not born to honor the teaching of the text that we're about to study together. But Jesus is calling us to meet this expectation, to honor the kingdom ethic with regards to retribution and how we interact with others. What I'm saying to you is that what Jesus describes in the verses to follow is a difficult teaching that you will not have the ability to honor in your own natural strength. Jesus is providing us here with, with the moral expectation, with the ethical standard for the kingdom. But I don't want us along the way to get mixed up and fall into the trap of believing that Jesus came to make bad men better or to make immoral men moral. Jesus came to make dead men live, to grant forgiveness of our sin. And what's being illustrated is not only the high standard of the kingdom ethic, but our inability and the natural man to meet that standard. I want to say to you at the beginning of our study, you must be born again. You must be born again because the heart with which you were born is desperately inclined toward violating the principles of this passage. Let's look together at verse 39. Jesus says, but I tell you, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I'm saying to you, I'm pushing back against the contemporary understanding of this verse as a justification for personal vengeance. I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks you, and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. It seems to me that that opening statement in verse 39, don't resist an evildoer, is the broader statement that is dealt with in greater detail later in verses 39 through 42. In other words, everything that Jesus says in the remainder of this passage can be summarized in that simple and single statement, do not resist an evildoer. And then Jesus addresses the issue of misunderstanding this principle in various arenas of life. Let me give you some examples, and I think you'll see. Jesus says, on the contrary... If anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. We're having asked for us and answered for us the question, for a kingdom citizen, how do we respond if physically attacked? If someone strikes you on your right cheek, Jesus says, turn the other to him also. This is an extremely difficult passage to teach through with any degree of specificity because there are situations and circumstances in life that dictate different responses. My encouragement to you is to take what Jesus says here in 39 through 42 almost as Proverbs. There are comparisons to be drawn between what Jesus says and between the Proverbs of the Old Testament, Proverbs of, of any passage in the Bible. 
Proverbs are intended to provide us with general principles whereby wisdom would seem to dictate that in most circumstances, this is how you should proceed. But there are exceptional circumstances. There are extraordinary scenarios that enter into our life where we have to take a different course of action, and a different course of action can be God-honoring in specific instances. Here Jesus says, if someone strikes you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. But what if, what if your life, what if your ability to live is relying upon your willingness, your ability to defend yourself in some kind of physical way in that moment? Where there are, well, there are times when we are called upon to sacrifice life and limb for the advancement of the gospel. And it is a God-honoring thing to lay our life down in martyrdom for the advancement of God's kingdom. And then there are those instances where the product of being made in the image of God compels us to defend the life that God has given us. The sanctity of human life is built into the very core of, of who we are, and we are compelled in that moment to defend life and limb. Certainly in the case of our families being harmed or endangered, it is the responsibility of a godly husband and father to defend those entrusted into his care. There are exceptional situations, not all of which are addressed in our passage. But at the heart of what Jesus is teaching here is that in the moment of some act of physical violence being committed against us, our natural reaction toward vengeance and retribution doesn't in any way trump our kingdom reaction, which is grace and humility. Now, some of this is balanced out by the reality that this slapping of the right cheek is something of an insult in first century Israel. There are a number of places in our passage where the difference in first century culture and our culture could, could not be more glaring. You would slap someone with the backhand on their right cheek as an insult in first century Israel, and it was a serious insult. If you insult someone in America with a slap on their right cheek with your backhand, a brawl will ensue. Our cultures are just different. Nevertheless, we have an instance of some act of physical harm being done to someone, some physical attack, and Jesus says our immediate response, our initial response is not necessarily to pay them back, to pursue retribution or vengeance, but to turn the other cheek. Here's what I want you to see, and this is so big for us, and I hope this resonates with you and you'll capture the essence of what I intend and what I believe Jesus intends in this passage. The good old boy ethic with which I grew up with and you grew up with is not the ethic of the kingdom with regards to physical violence. Like the good old boy ethic is you mess with me and I mess with you. And that is not the standard that Jesus establishes for us. Again, there are exceptional situations. And as men, we're called upon to protect and guard and safeguard our family, those entrusted to us. But, but our initial knee-jerk spinal reaction oughtn't to trump the kingdom response of grace and humility. In any event, it is clear that Jesus is saying that in the case of physical violence being committed against us, retribution is not the compelling factor but grace and love and humility and kindness and even sympathy toward those who don't know Christ the way we do. Probably the best-known martyrs of the 20th century were Nate Saint and Jim Elliott, who went to Ecuador 
to take the good news of the gospel to a people who had until then not been reached with the gospel, and they died by the spear on the beaches of Ecuador. What is often not talked about that story is that they died with guns in hand. It is believed that the discussion had been had on the way there to meet with those tribal people that if necessary, they would lay down their lives choosing not to use the weapons that they had in their possession to, to uh, respond or to retaliate or even to defend themselves because they were themselves prepared for eternity, whereas those who might wield the spear against them were not. That is a noble example of laying down one's life for the advancement of the kingdom. I can remember wrestling with this years ago and reading the autobiography of John Patton, missionary to the New Hebrides Islands. And there, there's various instances in his life where he was attacked by or endangered by those he sought to take the gospel to, a cannibalistic people there on the islands. In one case, a knife to his neck, he stood his ground. And was willing to die in that moment to prove his sincerity with regards to the gospel. He felt as though in that moment he was compelled by God to stand firm for the advancement of the gospel. In another scenario, virtually the same set of circumstances, he ran for his life and hid in the jungle. He believed himself to be led by the Spirit under both sets of circumstances. I have no reason to doubt his sincerity. He was willing to die once. Surely he'd been willing to die a second time. I'm just saying to you here that, that we're not dealing with hard and fast principles. And you need to be led by the Spirit of God. But what you cannot be led by and honor the teaching of Jesus is the spirit of retribution and vengeance. That's what Jesus is warning us against in the passage. How about if we're legally attacked? Look at what is said in verse 41. Or 40, rather. As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. Now, shirts and coats in our culture are the kind of things that we have closets filled with, and we don't typically concern ourselves with what kind of shirt or coat we have, other than we want to be stylish and we want to look approachable and pleasant when we meet the public. But in first century Israel, the cloak was critical to your well-being. In fact, in the Old Testament, you have permission, you have the legal ability to sue an individual for their shirt and to take away their shirt, but you may not sue them for their coat. In the event that someone offers a coat for collateral in a debt, that coat had to be returned by day's end because in that culture, the coat meant either warmth or cold by night, and in certain instances, it could be the difference between life and death. So when Jesus says, if someone wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. What he's describing here is not only a willingness to submit yourself to the legal authorities with regards to the shirt, but to go beyond even what the law allows and to give them your coat also. Here's the underlying principle, and here's where Jesus really presses deep here. Christians should be willing to forego our rights and privileges for the sake of other people. If someone would sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat as well. Forego your rights and liberties for the well-being of other people and for the advancement of the gospel. Notice that Jesus doesn't say forego the rights and privileges of other people. He says we ought to forego our rights and privileges for the sake of, of others. Y'all tracking with me this morning? 
If, if you are, this will really land hard for you. So one of the things that we've been able to observe over the past several months, and, and I, listen, before I say this, I've I, I got all the nuance and all of the variables that contribute to this, so you don't have to write me or stop me after church. But he, here's what I've observed through this whole mask crazy thing. We're unwilling to even be inconvenienced in the most subtle of ways for the well-being of those around us, let alone to forego our rights and privileges for the advancement of the kingdom. And woe unto us for harboring a spirit that is in such stark contrast to what Jesus calls us to in the passage before us. When legally attacked, as it's described here in verse 40, we respond the same way we do when physically attacked, with grace and humility and with compassion, willing to forego our rights and privileges for the well-being of those around us. Look at verse 41. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Now, what's being described here is a uniquely first century Israelite experience where Roman soldiers stationed within Palestine had the legal right to conscript into service any Israelite man to carry their bag for up to one mile. Let's ask this question. This is becoming a more relevant question, perhaps, than what we'd like to admit or what we had ever hoped would be the case. What if you are attacked by governing authorities? How do you respond under those circumstances? Now, think about this. You, you, have, you have a foreign force now residing in the land, and they have the legal authority to force you to carry their junk for up to one mile. Now, what we want Jesus to say is, throw their stuff down and smack them. That's what we want Jesus to say. That's what the ethic of this world says. That, that's, that's what we have been immersed in. That is the doctrine of our unique subculture. But what Jesus says is go with him not only one mile, go with him two. Now, I want you to think for just a moment about the differences in the way we respond in the 21st century to any perceived government infringement on our liberties versus the way the first century church responded to real substantial infringements on their liberties. Y'all with me? In the 21st century, we boycott, we picket, we protest, and in extreme cases, we might burn down some stuff. In the first century, when arrested, imprisoned, when beaten, they prayed for boldness and they persisted in the proclamation of the gospel. Now, I realize time and place, circumstances, I got all that. But I want you to note the stark contrast in the effectiveness, the power the church enjoyed in the first century versus the 21st. In the 21st century, we wring our hands and wonder what in the world we're going to do with the government. In the first century, the government wrung their hands and wondered what in the world they were going to do with the church. Now, I don't know how this works itself out in God's economy, but trust me, it does. When we entrust our souls to a good and faithful God, he has a way of making it all work out. And there's a willingness, there can be a joy and a gladness and a willingness on our part to forego rights and privileges here because we're radically different people. 
and we don't belong to this kingdom. We are citizens of heaven, and we've been given consequently an entirely different perspective. We see things different because of what Jesus has done in us. We're not living for our earthly retirement and the withdrawal of our 401k accounts. We are living for a day of finality when we meet the finish line and hear the Father say, well done, thy good and faithful servant. It puts all of the pains and sufferings and difficulties of life in the here and now into perspective. This stuff is not worthy to be compared with the glory that is yet to be revealed in us through Christ Jesus. When attacked by governing authorities, there is a willingness on our part. And listen, I understand completely that American Democratic Republic is a unique animal in and of itself, complicated by the fact that we are a government of the people and for the people and various other factors that contribute to the complexity of, of this issue. But our knee-jerk reaction ought to never be, in any circumstance, retribution or the insistence of our rights being observed at every turn or even our privileges being observed, but that, that we would see ourselves as least among the greater, that we would make real substantive sacrifices to see others come to faith in Jesus Christ. Here's one in verse 42 that might be even more personal. Jesus says, give to the one who asks you, and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Now, hopefully you've not been attacked by the government over the past few days, Hopefully, you've not been physically assaulted, and hopefully, you're not under a pending lawsuit. But virtually all of us, especially during the holiday season, will have the scenario described in verse 42 unfold within our families. Here's described a situation for us where someone in the circle wants to take advantage of someone else's generosity. Or at least take advantage of the fact that someone in the circle has made better financial and life decisions, so they're in a position where they're well-positioned to be able to help someone within the circle. And there are two extremes, two places that you can land here, and both can be harmful. There are those who get hard-hearted and even cold-hearted over time and just say, I'm not fooling with those people anymore. I'm done. I'm out. And to be frank, that's kind of conversation that we've had within my family more times than I'm like to admit. You know all those passages in the New Testament where they say Jesus dines with sinners and tax collectors? There's a part of that that's surprised that Jesus would be around those folks, but there's an element of that that is, I don't know why he's fooling with those people. They've always been that way, and they're never going to change. There's a touch of that. That's an unbiblical, it's not a kingdom-minded kind of outlook. There ought to be a willingness on the part of God's people to help the undeserving. You will never find it in the Bible that God helps those who help themselves. God always helps those who cannot help themselves and who foolishly put themselves in situations where they don't deserve God's help in any way, shape, form, or fashion. And the call of God on our life is to join him in the extension of his kind of grace toward those around us. So we need to be careful that we don't get tight-fisted when it comes to helping those the world will regard as foolish who've always been that way and will never change. Woe be unto us if that's our spirit. But there's, a, there's another extreme that can be gone to that can be just as harmful. Every, every person that I've ever known with substance issues, with addiction issues, no matter what those substance or addiction issues look like, 
or who are just a mess. And y'all know what I mean when I say just a mess. I mean just bad life decision on top of bad life decision, years and maybe even decades of bad life decisions. And every person I've ever known that way, there was at least one person, usually a mother or a grandmother, but it could be a father or a grandfather, who have enabled them for all their life, who have provided for every whim, every need that they could ever conjure up. They just gave it away and gave it away and gave it away. That is not what Jesus is describing in this passage. Although Jesus calls us to give to everyone, he doesn't call us to give everything to everyone. The responsibility that comes with our stewardship over the gifts God has entrusted unto us is not only that we would be generous, but that we be cautious, that we be careful with the way we give good gifts. For some of you, giving material aid, financial aid to that child, to that grandchild, to that family friend will do them far more harm than withholding the gift in the first place. The goal here for Jesus is to instruct us not when or what exactly to give, but the manner in which we give with generosity, with genuine compassion and sympathy and concern for those around us. How do we respond when we're taken advantage of, essentially in the same way we respond if physically attacked, attacked, legally attacked, attacked by governing authorities? When we're taken advantage of, we are willing to forego our rights and privileges. We are not counting this person's credibility, their deservedness for the gift. We're not checking their credit in order to make decisions about whether we will entrust to them some amount of debt. We are simply standing ready to be to them what God the Father has been to us, gracious and merciful, pursuing their well-being. Now, I'm just going to tell you, whether you've felt the weight of what Jesus has described here or not, this is not who we are in the natural man. It's just not. Y'all can look spiritual if you want to, but this is not who we are. For those of you who are not believers, you don't have the ability to do what Jesus has just described. And for those of us who are believers, if you're not walking in the Spirit, carefully walking in the Spirit, you'll struggle to honor what Jesus has described here. The boys and I were in traffic the other day, and I'm still not sure what I did to offend the gentleman who made a gesture. But I, I'm telling you, for about that long, I thought, I'll kill you. <laughs> for about that long. And, and you'd have thought the same thing. Because in your heart, that's who you are. In your heart, that's who you are. There were two little two-year-old boys who played in my living room on Thanksgiving. And we never taught them to throw things at each other or hit one another with, with hard objects if the other took their toy. We didn't have to teach them that. They were born understanding that to defend their stuff, their rights, their privileges, their space. You have been hardwired that way. And, and the nature of your heart has been further complicated by the fact that we have grown up in a culture that so celebrates our rugged individualism and our right to defend person and property that virtually nothing matters to us more than person or property. And what Jesus is calling us to in this passage is to look beyond person and property to a kingdom that is yet to come.
to be willing, yes, willing to even lay aside our person, our very life, and most definitely to forego rights and privileges for the well-being of others, that the world might know the grace that Christ has extended us because we stand ready to extend the same measure of grace to those around us. You can't do this on your own. I said in the beginning, and I, I want to reinforce this here, although Jesus is setting forth paragraph by paragraph the system of ethics that, that, that is sort of the standard for the kingdom, the goal of Jesus is not to make ethical people. The goal of Jesus is not to make moral people. The goal of Jesus is not to make you better. The goal of the sermon is not so that we can all come in and leave encouraged and, and better people than we were when we came in. The goal of the sermon, the goal of Jesus, the goal of the sermon on the mount is to make those of us dead in our sins and trespasses alive in Christ Jesus by faith in the gospel. This is the goal of Christ. And I want you to know today that though you were born with a heart desperately and hopelessly inclined towards sin, you are bent toward violating the very principles Jesus set forth in this passage. That there is the promise of a new birth whereby you can be born with a heart that has been freed from sin's bondage with the ability to walk worthy of the calling with which we have been called. You don't have the ability apart from Jesus to do what he's described in this passage. You just don't. The promise of the gospel is that if we believe upon God's only son, Jesus Christ, that he lived without sin, that he died as our substitute, that he rose again the third day. We get a new heart, and we get the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit comes to live within us. It doesn't mean it's all perfect from that moment forward. The Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. It does, however, mean that you now have the ability to do what God requires of you. You can meet the standard of obedience, the expectation that God has for you by the power of God's Holy Spirit. For some of you Christ followers, some of you Christians here this morning, you need to confess some sin, to set aside some bitterness, and walk worthy of the calling that God's placed upon your life. You have the ability to do it. It's frustrating to me when I hear Christians suggest that they can't do what God has so clearly commanded they do. The command itself has implicit, built into it, the power to see it through for the follower of Jesus with the Spirit of God in our heart. Others of you have come face to face in the last days and will come face to face again and again over the next days, celebrating this holiday season with those who have offended you in some great ways. The people you love the most have the ability to hurt you the worst. And you're going to have to deal with that, if not over the past few days, over the days that are to come. There are more of us who have celebrated quarantine and isolation during the holiday season than what we like to acknowledge for the very reasons just described. You're going to have to deal with it. As a follower of Jesus, you're going to have to do something about what Jesus has required of us in this passage. Break down your pride. Look beyond the experience of the here and now. Look toward the finish line and a good and faithful father who's called us into his kingdom. Set it aside. 
for others of you who don't know him. You need a new heart. You need to be born again. You need to trust and believe on Jesus. This, this will sound crazy to the world around us, but when attacked in the ways Jesus describes here, if you really know Christ, if he's the treasure of your life, there's a certain sympathy, a certain compassion, a certain mercy that we're reminded of in the moment, even of our offense, a reminder of what God has done for You know, the perfect example of this is, it's Jesus who from the cross, looking out across a crowd who cried, crucify him, crucify him, prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is not of this world. Would you come to know Jesus? Come into this upside-down kingdom, a radically new person with a radically different perspective because of what Christ has done for you. Oh, come to Christ. Come. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for its truth and for leadership and direction with a difficult passage. I'm, I'm not sure that in any of our services today I've done justice to this passage. God, I, I'm, I'm not sure that it's landed with the weight Jesus intended. But I pray that through the work of your Holy Spirit, God, you would help us to see just how different the kingdom is, just how broken we are just how desperately we need grace that is undeserved. God, I pray that you'd be pleased to save some in this morning's service, that you would add to the body of Christ, that you would build your church, that you would build even this church, that you would call us into faithfulness and make us different, salt and light people as we live out what is required of us in the passage at hand. God, forgive us where we come short. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to discern. May your will be done here. In Jesus' name, amen.